0: You're listening to the Golden West Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I explore the best in food and wine on the West Coast, including California, Oregon, and Washington. We're about to go on a journey, exploring the people and stories behind the vineyards, farms, and kitchens. So grab a drink, fire up your grill, pull up a seat to the table, and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Today's show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they're known for single-origin coffees, and they're committed to long-term, sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I always start my day off with a cup or two. I make it by hand with a pour-over, but it doesn't matter how you make yours. You can use a pour-over, maybe use a Chemex, maybe you just use a basic Mr. Coffee machine. It doesn't matter, but what does matter is the beans. You don't want those burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee beans that you find in the grocery store, and I don't even bother with that store brand stuff. So here's what you do. I'm going to make it really easy for you. Just go to covacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A, coffee.com, and use our promo code, Golden West. You'll get $5 off your first purchase. Do it now while you're thinking about it, and your coffee will show up at your doorstep as soon as you know it. Today in the show, we have John Stanley. John is the owner of Stanley's Wet Goods, a place for small production, naturally made wine, craft beer and spirits, wine bar, and online store based in Culver City, California. Enjoy my conversation with John. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great having you here. So I think the first thing to do is let's get a little into your background before watching, before Stanley's Wet Goods, and uh, kind of a little bit about what you were up to before then.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I feel like I've had probably three careers in my life, but um, the first one being I, I was actually in motorcycles in a big way when I was... Uh, in my youth, I guess you could say. And so I worked in the industry and did a lot of racing when I was, when I was younger. Um, and then through a relationship I had in the motorcycle industry, I was offered a position to be a project manager at an aerospace company, which at the time was Hughes Aerospace. And, you know, it was working for their satellite division in El Segundo. And I didn't know anything about satellites or aerospace or anything, but I was interested in moving to Los Angeles, you know, and moving over closer to the beach. And so I thought, well, you know, I'll just try this for a year, year or two. And, you know, 15 years later I was still in aerospace and working for Boeing. And so that was really sort of my second career, but um, really during the last half of that was getting a gaining a passion for wine Wine predominantly, but also really getting into spirits and cocktails and things like that. And um, at the same time, realizing that I needed to change my life and get into something that was a bit more self-driven. And so, I had decided to start my own business. Um, went back to school and um, got my MBA through UCLA. And then after that, finally determined what I was going to do, which is what Stanley's White Goods is all about. And here we are. We have one.
0: And was that doing uh, dirt bikes or road racing for the motorcycles?
1: I did both, actually. I started off racing motocross and then really got into road racing at a pretty young age. I think I started road racing when I was 18. Wow. And that's really what I was focused on for many years. And, you know, um, you know, got my pro license and we were traveling all over the country. And, you know, I have a lot of fun. But, um, you know, at some point in a racing career, you sort of figure out like, am I going to be able to make a living and do what I want to do with this? And unfortunately for me, that didn't work out, but that's okay. You know, there's always another chapter. Um, but it was, it was a great learning experience for me. And I, yeah, I very fond memories of that entire, all that experiences and all those years doing that.
0: Do you still have a motorcycle or ride at all? I do. Yeah. Um,
1: you know, now I just sort of put around and ride around <laughs> the street. I mean, I say put around, you know, it's like, I always, <laughs> right. I always, I slow motorcycles so I don't get myself in trouble, you know, because you know, once, once a racer, I always a racer, I suppose. Um, you know, I always like to find the limits of things, <laughs> I guess you could say. Um, so That's yeah.
0: Funny. I, I, I had a friend who used to sell motorcycles over on Lincoln Boulevard in Marina Del Rey. There's a there's a few motorcycle shops over there and he had always recommended for people coming in to buy <laughs> recommending something slower than what they wanted. So
1: <laughs> especially I,
0: for for cruising around LA.
1: Yeah, and good advice.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. My dad actually used to do dirt bikes when he was, I don't know, 18, 19, 20, 21, and he was a member of something called Dirt Diggers, which was a early dirt bike kind of racing club. So um, unfortunately, I was never able to do uh, dirt bikes or motorcycles. It was deemed to be too dangerous for me, but <laughs> that's what he was into. Um, and it's funny because he grew up right uh, right near the old Hughes Aircraft, kind of right near um, Playa, Playa Vista and kind of that whole area and, and kind of grew up in that era um, right along the 90 freeway. So it's interesting how, you know, the aerospace industry has such strong roots kind of in the South Bay and kind of that area itself. For sure. Yeah. So, yeah. So let's get in a little bit to starting Stanley's Wet Goods. As you mentioned, you know, you got your MBA at UCLA and, um, you know, wanted to make that career transition. Let's talk a little about just some of your early experiences getting into wine even before you started the shop.
1: Yeah. Well, I think like a lot of people, you know, you, you get introduced to wine just sort of haphazardly. Um, but for me, I think the, the turning point was my wife and I just more or less on a whim just to try to get out of town and go somewhere that looked beautiful. We decided to go up to Santa Barbara County and do some, you know, wine touring and just go to some tasting rooms and just get out in the, get out in the the country a little bit. Um, And, you know, we would just drive through, you know, Santa Ynez or Santa Rita Hills and stop at a few places during the day. And it really just interested me right away how different the wines could be, just going from winery to winery and, you know, getting some exposure to different grapes. And why is it that this wine that's made from the same grape tastes so different from this winery versus this one that's just three miles away. Um, you know, that sort of thing really intrigued me right away. And the other thing was just the quality of the wine. You know, once you started drinking good wine, you know, it became apparent that the stuff you were buying, you know, at the grocery store wasn't maybe so great. Um, and so I think the two of those things combined just sort of got me really intrigued. And before I knew it, I was really hooked in exploring wine in a, in a more, serious way, I guess you could say, Um, just, you know, I would keep exploring shops around town and just trying to understand what the heck is going on in the wine world. And um, just piece by piece, you start, you know, gaining a, a broader perspective about it. And that was really what, what started it all, you know?
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I think a lot of people have that experience where, as you mentioned, obviously just buying grocery store wines and, and drinking cheaper wines. And then once you taste something that's that next level up, um, it really opens up your horizons and can expand your palate. And you realize, wow, like there's some really you know great wines out there. And it starts getting you on this path about, as you mentioned, why is some, why do some wines taste different and it's from the same grape and all that type of thing. Um, what year around was that? Because there was this fanfare kind of around 2004, five, six, right when the movie Sideways came out, and there was this kind of transition from a lot of people learning about Pinot Noir who had maybe not, you know, heard about it in Santa Rita Hills area. So did that impact you at all, or you know, do you remember seeing the movie?
1: Oh, absolutely, it was a big deal because I remember that we we started our wine explorations in, in Santa Barbara County in like 2002, we being my wife and I. Um, okay. Yeah. And so it was pre sideways days and, you know, we would just go up and like I said, we would just sort of travel around and bop around. And, you know, once we did it, you know, the, the first time I kept asking like, you know, when are we going to go back up? (laughs) You know? And so, so we would go up as often as, as we could. Um and then when the movie came out it was just like, Wow, hey, look, you know, we know all these places that you know the <laughs> you know, all these restaurants and um, you know, tasting rooms that we had been to were in the movie and it was of course a big splash, not just in the wine culture, but more broadly amongst, you know, people everywhere and it had a huge impact on the wine industry in ways that I didn't even understand until much later on. Um just in terms of, you know, the growth of Pinot Noir in California and that sort of thing. And so, um, and unfortunately the demise of, of, uh, Merlot, um, but yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> that's pretty much the time that I got into it, you know? And so, um, it was, yeah, it was interesting how much influence that that movie had. Not so much on me. I mean, you know, I just thought it was sort of interesting and humorous. I mean, you know, I love the movie and I, I'm glad that it introduced a lot of people to wine that maybe it didn't um for good or for bad yeah
0: Yeah, that's cool you got to see that transition so starting around 2002 as you mentioned that was a a few years at least what three years before the movie came out so seeing that transition from kind of a more sleepy town in uh Santa Rita Hills Los Olivos to like you said making that big splash and it was really fun because I had uh, Rex Pickett on the show on the podcast. And he kind of told the whole, his whole story about, and that's exactly what he did was, you know, he had lived in Los Angeles at the time in Santa Monica and he used it as kind of a vacation and a little getaway. And he found he could play golf for really cheap and have a really good meal at the hitching post kind of thing. And that was kind of how he, you know, wrote the story and his, his character, you know, sorry, the character of miles was kind of based after him. So And and it's really interesting for people who had that experience before the movie and then after of of what happened of just the tasting rooms going crazy and just all the tourists kind of flooding in. So that's pretty cool that you were able to kind of see see that transition happen.
1: Yeah, it's just it's been pretty explosive growth um, since the movie. You know, I I guess I you know you can always. Sort of lament the fact that oh man it used to be so charming you know we would just come up here and be we kind of have the whole town to ourselves and now it's yeah not that way anymore that's <laughs> for sure but yeah, you know so, things change and um, that's okay now yeah, we go to Los Alamos and you know who knows how long that'll last I mean that's still pretty quaint and pretty quiet but um, you know that's changed as well
0: yeah and I I turned twenty one actually right when the movie came out so I remember seeing it in theaters and that was actually kind of my four, four way into wine was, you know, I watched the movie and of course, living in Los Angeles, I wanted to go up there. So I went to Sanford and I think Fox a handful of, you know, wineries, Lincourt up there, Stoppelman. And it was really cool for me. And it's funny because at the time, you know, turning 21 and going up there, it was Pinot Noir. It was just on my radar. I actually didn't even try Merlot, Cabernet or, or other varietals uh, for a long time just because that's kind of what I knew. So it's, I think it's it's interesting to f- what time, w- what year you grow up and when you come to wine them um, and kind of what you get started with, I guess. Mm. So, um, you know, let's get into a little bit about when the light bulb went off and when you decided you wanted to start Stanley's Wet Goods and then um, what that kind of looked like.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I got out of my MBA program still not knowing what I was going to do. I knew I wanted to start my own business, but I wasn't sure what that was going to look like. Um, my undergrad degree was in natural science, and so I was, you know, looking at sort of green technologies and and things like that. But you know, as I said, this entire time, my passion for wine just kept growing and growing and growing, and you know. Every spare moment that I had, I was reading about wine and, you know, going to these boutique wine shops around town and buying things up. And, you know, eventually I got to the point where I started complaining about wine shops and wine bars around town and, you know, what was going on. And I think I remember one evening, my wife just said, you know, I really think you just need to focus on wine and um, just do your own thing. You're complaining about all these shops that suck, you know, it's like just create the thing that you want, you know? And so that was really the impetus behind the whole thing. And I think that was really the turning point is just having that conversation with my wife and, um, just, you know, it's like, yeah, you know what, I really should do that. <laughs> so I think that, that was really it. I mean, um, trying to merge my passions with, you know, my business, uh, interests was, a little bit of a challenge, you know, because I didn't want to take the fun away from it. You know, wine was always so fun to me. And I thought, Oh, man, you know, if I make this my business, am I still gonna be able to enjoy it. But it turns out you can, you know, it's it's tricky. And uh, at times, you know, for sure, it's a business and you have to um, operate that way. But I'm super fortunate to be part of this community now. and very glad that I did it.
0: Yeah, one of the best pieces of advice I got in wine was seek out your local wine shop, you know, forget the grocery store, forget even Whole Foods, forget even like a specialty place like Bristol Farms, you know, seek out a, a wine shop in your area and then they'll be able to, you know, advise you on different varietals and kind of seek out a wine. And, and that advice I think is 100% spot on for Stanley's Wet Goods and exactly what you guys do there. And part of being a retail store and a specialty shop is kind of playing the part of a psalm where you're, you know, offering pairing advice. You know, you're you're doing education and you're like you said, you're operating a business. So you have you're kind of spanning all facets of the business right there. Um, And for people who've been to the shop, they know that you do tasting notes, um, with a little label there for each wine, which is really cool too. And of course we'll get into the website now with, um, with what's happening out there with the virus, obviously, but you know, what, what has that been like to be able to span all those different type of things to be able to fill, you know, all those needs for people?
1: Yeah. It's interesting. You talk about that. We're sort of a sommelier for the community. And I really think of it that way because I don't approach it in the, Maybe this is not, uh, you know, the best approach for my finances, but I really do approach it that way where I'm just trying to curate a a list, a selection, if you will, of wines in the shop that represent the diversity of what's exciting in the wine world right now. And that means a lot of diversity, a lot of diversity geographically, a lot of diversity in terms of style. And now, um, especially with what's been going on in society recently, I'm learning, you know, we need to include diversity in the people that are behind the wines. And so we're adding that to the mix as well. Um, but really, it's just, it's just the, the most fun but yet yeah, challenging thing is to, is to, you know, curate to create that environment where it's like, hey, you know, all the bottles that we carry are really thoughtfully um, brought in. You know, and we're standing behind all of it and it's not just we're not making decisions purely on economical terms, you know, trying to bring what's exciting to the table. But, I mean, at the same time, we realize we have to, you know, service the community and, and you know, what people want, um, you know. So, obviously, we we just we want to um, provide, you know, good products to the community, but at the same time steer people in the direction of more interesting, more healthy more socially conscious
0: wines. Yeah. And when I started out on my journey, you know, like we talked about, it was grocery store wines and then seeking out some of these specialty wine stores. And with your shop, as you mentioned, one of the slogans you've had on your website that I remember is delivering value at every price point, which really makes a, you know, really rung true for me because I've purchased a bunch of kind of, you know, wines in that lower and Price Point, which delivered a, an incredible value. Um, and I know your whole you know, list is curated um, to be able to deliver that value. And then, as you mentioned, a different you know, variety of both natural and then maybe more traditional producers. A couple that come to mind if you're looking for Napa producers, Favia, Carbone, Andy Erickson, um, Scarlet, which is a wine made by Mike Smith, who makes Carter... Or sellers a bunch of other wines he studied under Thomas Rivers Brown so you know you have really that balance what do you find that people are seeking out more natural wines or you know what do you what are you seeing in the in the actual sales numbers
1: yeah it's interesting because um you know when I opened the shop I really had an affinity for I guess what you would call natural wines I mean you know I always struggle a little bit with that with that term and we can talk about that if you want. But, um, yeah. you know, I, I, what I've found is over time, you know, like when I, when I started, I was like, well, let's, let's kind of play around with a little bit, but I'm not really sure if people are going to dig it, you know? And then it just seems like there's no end to the, to the intrigue and the interest level for people around natural ones. And I think that's fantastic, you know? And so over time, it just keeps growing and growing and growing and, and, um it's an incredibly important part of what's going on in wine right now. And I think it's here to stay. And um, so, so I'm, I'm really glad that we're able to be, you know, a champion of natural wines in this part of town and, and hopefully more broadly in Los Angeles.
0: Yeah, let's talk about natural wine. It's, it's a buzzword. It can be kind of misinterpreted or some people say it doesn't really kind of have a lot of meaning or backing behind it. I've had a couple people on my podcast, just for context, Jim Dwayne from CV, who considers himself a natural winemaker and they make, you know, big cabs. Philippe Melka is a consultant there. And, uh, you know, he's talked about, well, they're not really using a lot of additives and it's, you know, they're not using things like mega purple or you know too much sulfur or whatever, so he kind of considers himself that um and then I had Diana Snowden on the podcast who kind of is more on that natural side um and she talked about kind of the nuances there um and you know we talked about Martha Stewman, who you know you carry in your shop, who's you know very well regarded she makes amazing wines, but she also sought out very specific vineyards. You know very, very specific, or she could dry farm or she could use some of these practices, so I think there's a lot of nuance there when it comes to the vineyard that's being used, and then you know the sulfur is is another kind of thing there that people talk about um so what are your thoughts on it on the subject?
1: Yeah, well, like you said, I mean there's no technical definition about natural wine, and so it it creates this. Mm, I don't know if it's confusion or just sort of different people have different ideas about what natural wine is. Um, you know, I can, I can say for me, it is there. It's not like a monolithic thing, right? It's not like, well, that one's natural and that one's not, you know, to me it's a spectrum. Um, but I would say the minimum requirements to be considered natural is, you know, no additives whatsoever in the wine except for some sulfites. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're, if you're monkeying around with, you know, acidification or, you know, any coloring or anything like that, that's not natural. <laughs> I mean, if you, basically, if it's not just grape juice, it's not natural. That's, that's not a natural one. <clears throat> Again, you know, sulfites aside um, and we can, discuss with why you would want to use sulfites, but basically it's just, you can think of it as a protection for the wine so that you don't get really bad actors in terms of bacterial influences in the wine. Um, I think in low uh, doses and when you use it judiciously, you know, sulfides can be okay. Um, and so I wouldn't, I wouldn't cast aside any wine that uses sulfites as being not natural. Um, some people might disagree with me. Um, but more to me, it's about you know farming practices, and the more and more I drink natural wines, and more I research about wines, it's it's less. I mean, it is about the winemaking, and like I said, if as soon as you're adding anything to it, not natural, um, and as soon as you're sort of taking away from something, you know, if you're trying to filter things out or you know somehow correct the wine, that's not natural. But really, when when it comes down to it, if you're doing good farming then you don't need to do all those corrections. And so that's the most important thing for me. Um, So at a minimum, we're talking about people that are either farming organically or approximating organic farming, maybe in a very, very challenging year where they have to spray for a particular stress or, you know, a mold or something like that. You know, I'm not going to hold that against them. I mean, it's it's really a choice of, you know, am I going to lose my entire crop or am I going to, you know, save it. Um, so that, you know, as long as they understand, you know, when it's absolutely necessary or not, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's okay with me. Um, but at the best, you know, it's, it's biodynamic farming, which is a whole nother thing we can talk about. It's dry farmed. it's regenerative farming. There's all these, um, terms that get thrown around and it gets very complicated. And I think, you know, the more you dive into each person's story, you start to understand a little bit better what the challenges are in their particular um, region, you know, and then you, and then you start getting a window into why they have to farm the way that they do, why they are farming the way that they do. Um,
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think you hit the nail right on the head there. The one slogan I've heard is nothing added, nothing taken away you know, that can be stretched uh, a little bit further, you know, with sulfur, as you mentioned, it's, it's clearly in moderation is okay. Um, and especially to kind of stabilize the wine. We had uh, Jared Brandt from donkey and goat on, and he talked about, well, if he sold all his wine in Berkeley <laughs> where they're based or San Francisco, he probably wouldn't add sulfur to any of his wines, but they ship, you know, all over the world to Europe you know, all over. And so, you know, it's needed. Some of his wines, actually, I believe the pet nat, he said still contains zero. Um, But, you know, I've heard stories where in the old days, it would just be used way, way too much. So it would just be dumping it and dumping it and all throughout the process, not just at the end. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, I think there's a lot of nuance there for people to kind of read about and understand. Um, And with grocery store wines, there can be over, I think it's over 250 additives and some of them can be really dangerous. So, you know, that's, that's another reason shopping at Stanley's and your local wine shop can make a lot of sense. Now you mentioned the dry farming. So you actually were one of the first people to turn me on to Frog's Leap you know John Williams one of the really early organic farmers here in Napa and you can go down the list of some of the other ones Philip Tony David Ramey. we had Steve Matthiasen on the podcast talking about regenerative farming so let's get into you know dry farming regenerative and organic and and your thoughts there
1: Yeah I mean look uh with Water being such a precious resource, as um, things are changing with our climate, you know, and and just in general, I think the diversion of water for agricultural resources we're learning is not such a great idea, and so I I think that especially in places like California, where you know at first glance you might say, well, these are pretty dry, you know, arid climates, you know, we need to irrigate, but I think there's a lot of people who are really challenging that notion, and. Um, it turns out that, you know, you can make some fantastic wines and the, and the vines can stay healthy um, with either minimal or no irrigation whatsoever. And so I think it's just um, challenging the notions that, you know, vines have to be irrigated in order to produce good wine. You know, I, I, largely, I think it's just false. I mean, <laughs> you know, in, in much of Europe, it's just not there, the irrigation just doesn't exist and the climates can be really similar to California. And so I think we're living in this um, sort of self, I don't know, what do you say? Like um, people have convinced themselves that they need to irrigate vines here in California. But in reality, I just don't think it's the case. And there's a lot of people who have um, proven that that's possible to do. Um, so I just think in terms of, you know, water usage, it's, it's the more responsible thing to do. But the the other thing is, is that it forces the vines to, you know, dig the roots deeper and to extract more, um, mineral content out of the soils, which makes its way into the wines and they make better wines. Um, so there's kind of double, um, reason, you know, why we should be pursuing dry farm vines. Um, so I think that's a really important piece of it, um in terms of organics, I mean, you know, I, I don't know. I think that to me, it's just sort of do no harm. You know, it's, it's, it's great, you know, it's important, but it's, it's also sort of honestly at this point, it's sort of like, okay, great. Now what, now what else are you doing? You know, because I mean, you know, the avoidance of using pesticides and herbicides and that sort of thing. I mean, there are uh, clearly some natural treatments that you can use in the vineyards that are proven to be effective. And so, you know, let's just at least do that. <laughs> I mean, I would hope that I would hope that most people can agree that, you know, when there's alternatives to using uh, harmful chemicals um, on our agricultural products, we should be doing that. Um, so, you know, in yeah, terms of- next-
0: yeah. No, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs>
1: No, I mean, I just think it's 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 almost kind of a minimum bar for me now. You know, it's like, okay, you know, great, you know, nice. But um, biodynamics and regenerative farming is really where I think it gets interesting. And so, um, you know, biodynamics can be a little, it's a long conversation if we really want to get into it. But, you know, it's it's essentially, a, a, I, I guess the way I would describe it, it's a way of, you um, promoting biodiversity in the vineyard. So rather than just having uh, a monocultural environment where you just have, you know, soil and vines um, there can be a lot of other species that are living in that, um, in that vineyard, including different insects, different weeds, you know, different plants um, in inviting other animals into the, into the environment. Um, And so it's really a way to say, Hey, through balance and through, um, getting some diversity of species within the vineyard, you're actually improving both um, the quality, really the quality of the soil is the focus there. Um, and so it's through this strain um, on the vines and on the, the environment that you achieve balance and that you achieve um, better quality uh, fruit from, from the vine. So it's good for the earth, good for the vine, good for the wine.
0: Yeah, it's really funny how you talk about the, the organics as being the first bar there. It's kind of like, okay, well, what's next? And I heard Kathy Corison on a podcast talking about that exact same thing where she basically said there's no excuse for not farming organic. And you can talk about releasing ladybugs or having sheep come in or having the barn owl boxes um, you know, to ward off the uh, the... The little critters that come in. I mean, there's so many ways you can kind of manage the vineyard, and it actually does reduce costs over time. To be able to not bring in, um, you know, tractors to mow things down and pay for all the gasoline, and it, there's so many things involved with. Once you have certain practices in place, then it it does save money over time, and it's it's way better for the environment for the vineyard itself. So that's a really interesting point. Yeah, I mean, look, um, no-till agriculture, just in, in
1: general, is a enormous impact on, you know, our CO2 emissions in, you know, in the world, really. Um, and this concept that, you know, all vineyards have to be tilled and, you know, well, of course we have to till. Um, so I think no-till is another big thing that is, is gaining a lot of traction in viticulture. And I think for good reason, um, you know, it's just been accepted dogma if you will about you know how to how to farm vines um and there's a lot of people that are learning that you know what when we don't till, you know if you give it enough time you know there's a lot of benefits to it um and really what we're talking about is carbon capture you know i mean viticulture is a tiny tiny part of agriculture in the united states and in the world but I think, in a way, if, if viticulture can lead the way and say, "Hey, you know what? There's a lot of benefits to no-till farming," um, that that sort of ethos can can spread to a to a broader audience, and um, it's it's a big deal. I mean, you know, we could have a major impact on our climate crisis if if we just employed no-till farming, you know, across the country, even. Um, so, you know, starting with viticulture, I think is is a is a good first step.
0: Yeah, those are some really good points. There's a lot of people working on this right now. I know Dan Petrovsky; he's the winemaker at uh, Larkmead. He also has his own brand called Massican. Um, Diana Snowden, who I mentioned, she's doing some experimentations on capturing carbon in the winemaking process. Um, and then there's a concern about actually making the wine bottles, how that releases so much heat and and carbon dioxide so there's a lot of things people are working on and some interesting projects so that's something and the no-till farming as you mentioned these are things that are gaining momentum and and hopefully will um will continue for the next few years as far as research and development if you will <laughs> technology kind of in the winemaking space let's get back to the store itself um, just as you mentioned, the curation of so many different uh, varietals, but also regions and you have it you know, broken down beautifully by region and the beautiful wood, wood craftsmanship that people can't enjoy right now, hopefully soon. Um, but you have the beautiful website up where people can see photos both front and back most of the time of every wine bottle. So it's it's kind of like almost being there. Um, so talk a little about the store and kind of how that came together and your, your vision of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think um, I mentioned earlier that, you know, before Stanley's was even sort of a a, a kernel in, in my mind, you know, I, I would complain to my wife about my experience going to retail wine shops. And, I, you know, it just always amazed me that, you know, I could go shopping in these places where it's like maybe they had fantastic wine, but I was digging through cardboard boxes to find them or, right. <laughs> you know, under fluorescent lights. And it was just sort of this really weird experience and, and you know, no explanation about the wines or if, I, you know, I would sort of have to find, you know, this person that, that really knew what they were doing in a wine shop and just have them walk me around the shop and, you know point out things that were that were good wines and i just thought you know this is crazy i mean you know i'm spending a lot of money um buying buying wines and seeking out good wines and the experience is just awful um and and so my idea was you know let's let's at least make the the, (laughs) you know the environment and the experience something that people can enjoy and look forward to and and come in i mean you know we're we're representing um people's life's work literally i mean you know they're they're pouring their heart and soul and their livelihood into creating these, these wines. And, um, you know, the least we can do is present them in a, in a decent fashion, you know, rather than just open up a cardboard box on the floor. Um, so that was, that was really my vision is try to create a space where people can, um, enjoy, enjoy the experience and, and really take the time to, read about the wines and, and hopefully understand them a little bit better and also have a place where, you know, myself and, and staff can walk around and engage with people and, and just explain what the heck is going on with all this stuff, because it's complicated, you know, wine, unfortunately is complicated and, you know, I know people try to sort of simplify it through all these different mechanisms, but I think at its best, um, it, it is a complicated thing. It's a natural product that comes from all these different places in the world and, each one has its own story, and so it deserves to be told.
0: Yeah, and you do such a great job with just the layout and the customer service. Um, and then obviously with this pandemic that we're all experiencing, being able to do the Instagram you know, videos and provide kind of that digital experience, Um, talk a little about the wine club and then some of the videos you've been doing and how people can kind of interact with that if they would like to, uh, do that.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's been interesting. The, you know, the, the website was, um, something that I always thought was going to be important just to be able to, um, expose people to what we're all about without, you know, actually visiting inside the shop. Um, and up until COVID, you know, it was just sort of a very small piece of the business. And suddenly, you know, overnight, literally, it just went from, you know, 2% of the business to 98% of the business. Um, well, wow. um, you know, it's so it's been um, sort of fortuitous that we put all that work into it up front. Um, but also, you know, I and mean, obviously, everybody's just trying to um, get through the situation the best we can. Um but I just think it's, it's really important again to convey our um, perspective on the wines. You know, we don't rely on, you know, somebody else's opinions or reviews or point scores or anything like that. Um, You know, I just don't, frankly, I just don't, uh, I I think point scores are at best uh, outdated and at worst actually harmful to the wine industry. And so it really just, don't participate in that at all. Um but, you know, it's just a way for us to try to showcase again the the products that these people put their livelihoods into.
0: Yeah, the point scoring, it's it's so funny how it's that was, you know, created and it's kind of served a purpose at the time. And now It's my belief that storytelling is a huge part of selling wine now. And also you do such an amazing job on your notes when you're, you're walking through the store and you can actually look for each individual wine and, see some of the flavors and tasting notes and profile, not to mention talking to people, as you mentioned, talking to the staff. But for me, hearing the, the story in the background about a winemaker, hearing uh, kind of that history maybe and kind of that story, storytelling element goes a long way. And for me, it, it makes the wine a lot more, more enjoyable. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, there'll be a lot of interesting ways that people will be able to, you know, market and sell wine in the future. And hopefully storytelling and, and learning about, like you said, people are pouring their their life's work and pouring everything into this, this product. And I think there's a lot to be learned. And um, sometimes it makes the wine more enjoyable when you, when you hear the story. Sometimes just looking at a label, it's like you mentioned, when you're in a wine store, it can be really intimidating. So having any extra insight, for me at least, has kind of helped me be able to choose a wine but also just enjoy it a little bit more so
1: yeah it's funny it's like we're trying to strike a balance because there's a lot you know frankly there's a lot of people who just come in and they're just like i don't know i just want like some cool you know natural wine i'm just gonna hang around with my friends you know they they don't want to hear the story behind the wine and that's fine right (laughs) right so i think um what we're trying to do with the tasting notes is just more convey the emotion of the wine and just like you know hey why is this wine cool or like what what does it evoke in us or like why are we excited about it and so a lot of the, a lot of the tasting notes that we have are pretty playful and just sort of you know like i say trying to evoke the personality of the wine um and not get hung up on oh this is you know dry farmed and all that kind of stuff um but then you know especially online we have the opportunity and we do this a lot you know where we where we provide links to either you know the winemaker themselves so you know hey if you're interested you know you can you can check out you know, more about this winemaker and we, and we provide producer info links right from the website. Um, and then we also do like tech tech notes. So if you're geeky, you know, you can click on, you know, a link that'll get you right to the tech notes. And so just kind of depending on how engaged you want to be, we're trying to be flexible and provide different options for, you know, the, the customer to be able to, to do that. And so, I mean, at the end of the day, once just fun, you know, and it's, it's meant to just be drunk and enjoyed and so we don't want to, you know, get too serious about it. I mean, you know, it's it's easy for me to get really geeky about it and be all concerned about the farming and you know, and the winemaking and all that sort of thing. And it's very important to me, and I think it's important. It should be important to a lot of people. But you know, at the end of the day, it's it's let's not take this too seriously.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a good point too. And for people out there who, let's say, they you are new to wine out there listening, um, and you you just you literally don't know where to go, and and you don't you're tired of kind of drinking the grocery store wines or you're looking for that next level step up, then, you know, stanleys.la, which we're going to link here in the website show notes, where you can buy and and peruse and they ship, you know, you don't have to be in Los Angeles. You can get the wine shipped to you is kind of, as you mentioned earlier, when we were talking about kind of like a personal psalm. Where you know this is a curated list, and you're going to be getting something of quality, and you're going to be getting quality at every price point. So it's kind of like a no brainer where you're you're getting that level of service. Where it's almost like a, a consultant helping you pick wines, but. You know, it it kind of weeds out wines that maybe you know you wouldn't want to drink. Where you know you'll be able to explore some things that people have actually kind of tasted and kind of passed through a screen, I guess, if you will. Is that the right yeah. way to think about it? <laughs> oh my God,
1: yeah. I mean that that's what we do every day, all day long. I mean, you know, I, I think um, if you, I guess, I would just think of us as is you know giant funnel um, for, for wines. And, you know, look, I don't, I don't want to overstate sort of what we do and like, Oh, we have the best wines in LA or something like that. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's a little preposterous. I mean, there's, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of really good wines and there's a lot of other people doing a great job in the city. And so, um, I'm just happy to be part of that community, but, but really, I think what we're all about is setting a minimum bar, like, you know, all of our distributors, Importers, they know what we're all about and, you know, look, don't bother bringing conventional wine to Stanley's to have us um, sample or taste or consider bringing into the shop, you know. So we immediately weed out, you know, all of the sort of conventional mass produced wines that that don't really have the character that, that we're looking for and don't subscribe to that ethos that we're looking for. Um, but then from there, we're still extremely selective. I mean, you know, I would say our yield is about, you know, for, it's about 10%. So, I mean, you know, we'll taste 10 wines, we'll bring one in and it's, it's literally that selective. And then, I mean, you mentioned at the lower end of the price range, I think that's the most competitive, uh, part of the shop for us. I mean, you know, we've got this whole, you know, section in the front of the store that's, you know, all wines under 20 bucks and, you know, to get, to get a slot up there. I mean, the, you know, it's, it's tough. I mean, you know, there's, there's a lot of, you know, decent wines that retail for under $20, but there's not a lot of great wines that retail for under $20 and we're just always, always on the hunt for those. And so, um, you know, it's you can get a lot of bang for the buck, you know, even in that under 20, but I would say, especially if you can, if you can get up to the, you know, $25 retail range, you can find some fantastic wines.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. That's one thing you guys do do best, and you do such a great job. Let's get into some of the wines. So, this podcast we focus, we try to have a little bit of a focus. So, I kind of made it all West Coast focus. So, California, Oregon, Washington. Um, you know, obviously, California has so many regions. Washington, you got you know, you, Williamette Valley Pinot i uh, or sorry, Oregon, <laughs> uh, Washington, Walla Walla. You got, you know, a lot of things going on there. So just a handful of ones I'll name off here that I've tried from the store, which you can buy on the website, Sandy Pino, um, which anyone who has seen the Somme films, you know, know that pretty well, uh, Rajat Par. Um, another one is Gramercy Cellars. So I've had the Cab and the Syrah and they were just to me mind blowing because you had that nuanced style and kind of more balanced style wine that goes better with food is kind of one of their uh, hallmarks. And to me just, wow, both of those really blew my mind. And you can, you can get them both on the website. The other one is uh, domain Eden from Santa Cruz um, and more kind of more restrained style, but actually one of the best wines I've had. Um, one of the best cabs and, and, you know, coming out of Santa Cruz there. Um, and then a couple other kind of more funky ones, Martha Stumann, her red, which I tried from the store, and then the Finca Minor red. Um, and then I, I saw that you recently started carrying the donkey and goat, uh, the Gallivanter, which is kind of their entry level wine. So I don't know, talk about uh, some of those producers, because I know it, it kind of has a spectrum there from Pinot, Cab, Syrah, and a few other varietals. But that just kind of shows just the breadth of, of what you guys offer.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think um, probably the the two more, I don't know, I'll, I'll just describe maybe two ends of the spectrum in terms of California wine that I that I find pretty compelling. Yeah. Um, one is these more traditionally styled wines, but made from, you know, either either people that are kind of pushing the edge in their particular region. For instance, you know, you mentioned Sandy and Domaine de la Cote. And so, you know, in, in Santa Rita Hills, I think... Those guys are just really both in terms of you know vineyard sites, what how they set up the vineyard, which you know we could talk about for hours. But um, you know they're farming the whole thing. You know it's producing these these wines that are just incredible. You know and to, and to have Pinot Noir um, from Santa Rita Hills that rises to that level is, is that's an accomplishment. You know and and so we celebrate that. Um, I mean, you mentioned you know, uh, Mount Eden. I mean that, you know, obviously historical, uh, winery and and vineyard in California. I mean, it doesn't get much more, um, importance in terms of wine culture in California than those guys. And so we're happy to celebrate that sort of thing. But, um, I guess on the other end of the spectrum, you know, you have people like Martha Stumann. Um, you know, we had, I mean, gosh, we've we've got now wines from you know people like Method Sauvage. I mean, in Irwy. I mean, you know, he's really pushing the limits of farming in California. He's got vineyards now up in Siskiyou County, you know, up on the border of uh, Cal- uh, California and Oregon, um, and these really high elevation sites where it's just you know you wouldn't think of farming uh, grapes up there, but he's found some old vineyards. And he's making wine from there. That's just incredible, you know. And so, what I what I think is really exciting about California right now is that there are winemakers that are really sort of bending uh, or challenging the the rules about wine um, in ways where it's like, hey, we're going to blend red and white grapes in the same bottle. You know, we're gonna we're gonna blend red and white wine in the same bottle. Um, you know, I think that's super exciting. And there's just some fantastic examples that have come out just in the past two years that are just like mind blowing wines. And I think that's to me, probably the cutting edge of California wine that I find the most compelling right now.
0: Yeah. You brought up, uh, you know, I saw that on the Instagram channel, people can check out that content. And as you mentioned, you have different winemakers on from time to time and, There's content that people can go check out. Um, You know, there's something for everyone. We had Jamie Kutch on the program. He makes some really amazing uh, Pinot Noir and also Chardonnay out of Sonoma. Um, And he, you know, I actually asked him on the podcast, well, what are you drinking when you're not (laughs) drinking your own wine? And he mentioned Drew. Uh, Pinot, um, and they have vineyards up in Mendocino and in other places. And right away, I, boom! I knew I knew what it was because I actually tried a bottle from your store. <laughs> so you know, you, you have winemakers who are, you know, whatever. Sometimes they're drinking. You could probably find it at Stanley's. I guess is what I'm trying to say.
1: <laughs> yeah, we were fortunate enough to uh, go up and visit Jamie at Drew, you know, le- um, this last summer and see the vineyards and. In- it's just an incredible sight. I mean, you know, Mendocino is, I think, producing some of the most elegant Pinot Noirs in, in California. And um, their wines are just fantastic. And when you see what they're doing in the vineyards and the passion that they have around the wines, it's, it becomes pretty obvious, you know, why the wines are so compelling. I mean, it's literally, you know, Mendocino Ridge is one of the, I think it's the only AVA in California that's literally this, this AVA made up of islands um, because it's defined by elevation. And so the, the only sites that are within the ABA have to be above a certain elevation. And so you have these sort of, like I say, islands in the sky, if you will. Um, and so they're, they're making, they're part of that ABA and they're, it's just fantastic lines.
0: Yeah. So let's get into a little bit about, I don't know, let's just have some fun and, uh, talk about what you've been drinking lately. I don't know what you reach for when you're not grabbing wine, any food and wine pairings you like, I don't know, some fun stuff like that.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, I mentioned uh, Method Sauvage and Uruguay earlier. So Chad Hines, he's been, you know, we have this, we have this wine currently. Um, it's gosh, I'm trying to remember the name. Of it. I know it has Shasta in the name of it. Anyway, it's a white wine that's just incredible. I mean, you know, it's one of the most exciting white wines um, from California I've had this year. And so that one i kind of can't get enough of Christy Tacey with Tessier. Um, she's doing a knockout job with, with um, her natural wines as well. Um, and then, you, you know, the guys that, um, um, you know, Populous and Le Lune. Um, you know, yeah. They make, they make some great stuff. Yep. Yeah. So I think, you, you know, in terms of natural wine, there's a lot to be excited about in California, but it, it's funny though, because I kind of, I sway from that, you know, these really adventurous, you know, like cutting edge kind of like wines to really like lately I've just been reaching for like these incredibly like classic, you know, uh, European wines. And so I ultimately I feel like I, I drink probably two thirds old world and one third, you know, new world and mostly California. Um, yeah. So you know, I've been drinking a lot of Austrian wines recently, and just in adoring those. Um, I think you know Austrian Grüner Veltliners and Rieslings are just amazing and completely underrated wines in the world. And you know, Central European wines from you know Hungary, um, you know Croatia, just fascinating. And there is just so many regions of the wine wine world that um, are largely unexplored by the by the larger. You know, wine drinking culture, and especially in California, and so I'm just really happy to bring some of that to the table as well.
0: Yeah, that's what's amazing about the shop, like you said, is just the variety in all the different countries. And I know in your store you have um, what is it, Israeli wines, maybe Greek wines, like different, you know, Austrian, all types of, you know, besides just kind of the the Spain, France italy um which of course you know are the big ones but you know for people to seek out different things there's something for everyone and that's part of the fun as you talked about it's, it's supposed to be fun and supposed to be you know interesting to taste uh, new and exciting stuff so i think lastly you know we'll link the sh- uh, url in the show notes here so people can go by but any last things you wanted to say just about the wine club or, or things you have planned in the future here
1: yeah. Well, I mean, wine club is certainly the easiest way for people to get a sense of what we're all about because the wine club is really just a, a tour of the wine world one month at a time. And so we just focus on a different region every month. Um So for instance, I mean, this last month, we were in the languedoc uh region of France, um, which is not, you know, as well known as say Burgundy or, you know, Bordeaux or that sort of thing, but there's some really compelling wines coming out of there and you can get a lot of bang for the buck. And so, Um, just like I say, with the wine club month by month, we're just going, um, from place to place and exposing people to what's available in those regions. And, um, I think it's really a good window into what we're all about, you know, it's celebrating all the diversity in wine and, and just sort of what's exciting right now. Um, so we're having a lot of fun with that and we're really grateful that people are, um, that it's resonating with with people and that we're we're getting so much support through that um but the other thing of course during covid is is we've been doing you know we haven't been able to engage with people as much in the shop but you know i just said hey you know what can we do um so i've been inviting people from the wine industry on every week and we've been doing instagram live sessions which i'm continuing to do and so it's it's really a mix you know it's it's producers. It's uh, importers and distributors of, of good wines. And it's also just people in the Los Angeles wine scene that are doing some interesting things. Um, You know, mostly sommeliers or wine directors and that sort of thing. I I just think Los Angeles is a fascinating place to be able to drink wine. And so we're celebrating that and posting different Instagram live sessions every week. And so, you know, Hey, we're just doing our thing, having fun and providing a, a window onto what we think is exciting in wine and we're Again, just super happy to be part of the community.
0: Yeah, that's great. We're going to link the Instagram, a uh, couple Instagram feeds here in the show notes, and then the website. It's it's really easy to remember too, Stanley's dot LA, um, and you can go there and buy wine and, and get it delivered. Um, and John, really appreciate having you on. The one last thing you just mentioned the LA scene. You know, there's some history there where I believe it's Manfred Crankle. He was a a Psalm over at one of the fancy restaurants in LA. I'm, I'm blanking on the name You yeah, know, before he started Synchronon. Um And then you have, you know, we had a master Psalm on the show uh, a couple weeks ago and he started out early on in kind of the mid nineties and he was based in Venice. Um, and he, he talked about a couple of the places on Abbott Kinney and, you know, there's the place Joe's there that closed down. But um, I, I mentioned to him, Michael's over on Wilshire, which there was a, story just recently I think in Los Angeles magazine about how they're really facing an un- uncertain future now but mm-hmm. you can look at the the place on Pico Valentino, which closed and now is a J- uh, Jonathan gold favorite but you know the Los Angeles scene that maybe doesn't get as much credit or notoriety as New York or some of the other you know cities but it just wow when you really dig in it there's a there's an incredible history of food and wine here I think.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of history, but also I think like Los Angeles itself, it's just always evolving and changing. And, you know, unfortunately we're going to lose a lot of restaurants due to, due to COVID and that's really sad. Um, but, you know, I think what's fantastic about the LA wine scene and, and what we're seeing in restaurants is that it's adventurous. You know, I mean, rather than, of course, you know, we want to celebrate the classics Um, but you know, I'm having Richard Hargrave, um, on, um, Thursday night this week on Instagram live. And I mean, he was the wine director in Sommelier at Major Domo. And I mean, that wine list was just a celebration of everything that's great in wine, you know, both the classics and these super adventurous natural wines. And I think that's really what's driving, um, what's so fantastic about Los Angeles wine scene right now, especially with, with dining. And I hope it continues uh, once we're back to something that resembles normal, um, you know, and I'm sure it will.
0: Well, great. People can look forward to that then. And, uh, you know, we'll have a link in the show notes and John really appreciate having you. Thanks so much for having me on. I would super. Thanks for joining us today. If you like the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can support the show by subscribing to our email newsletter for just five bucks a month. Find it on our website at goldenwestpodcast.com. In it, you'll find unique bottles from both popular and undiscovered winemaking talent, among other things. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter at goldenwestpod, or you can email us at goldenwestpodcastgmail.com. At As a reminder, All opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and may or may not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or any other advice. Please eat and drink responsibly and thanks for listening.